Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group. Group, member FDIC and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to the OK Computer podcast takeover of the On the Tape feed. OK Computer is the latest offering for risk reversal media. We're going to cover all things tech, public and private markets, the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3. We have this amazing group of co-hosts and contributors. This is going to be in the On the Tape feed for a short period of time. So please follow OK Computer in your podcast stores so you get new episodes every Wednesday on your phone. Thanks. All right, you're listening to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I am here with my co-host, Rick Heitzman of First Mark Capital. Rick, how the heck are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Hello, everybody. The, the market's green. My yeah. screen's green. I'm feeling better. It's, it feels like it's been too long. Uh, yeah, well, here you go. Maybe we have a near-term bottom, but I don't think it's the bottom. We're going we're gonna to get to the bottom of that. We have a great conversation with Melton Demers from CoinShares and Trevor Marshall, the CTO and co-founder of Current on everything crypto. That's going to be the back half of this show. All right, Rick, you're pretty fired up here about a green NASDAQ. I'm looking at a 2.5% high in the NASDAQ, almost 2% in the S&P 500. This is Tuesday afternoon here. Last week, things did not feel great. At the lows, the S&P 500 was down 20%. The NASDAQ was down 30%. That was from their highs. We were easily in bear market territory for both. So we're firming up here a little bit. I think the sentiment got a little bad a little too quickly here. But we also have this situation where I think that there's a lot of individuals who think that maybe inflation is peaking and then we might see maybe expectations for rate hikes towards the end of this year kind of petering off. And then if you think about where we are from a valuation standpoint and how long large parts of the stock market have been correcting, maybe we're getting closer to a bottom than we are towards the mid part of a protracted bear market. I think that's the bull case. And I actually feel pretty good about that. A lot of the things you're reading is inflation is going to peak in the July-ish type timeframe when there's better comps. The Fed and, and even some former members of the Fed have said, hey, if that's the case, there's no reason to have prolonged rate hikes. Let's see what happens with a renormalization of the employment market. And that's so up in the air because there's been so many variables in that equation. And then if there's no more rate hikes, I think you're going to start to see a more normal market and things are going to start to look cheap. And this is where I push back. It's not that I'm some perma-bear. What's different this time is that the Fed have been raising. They're trying to tamp down not only an asset bubble, but also inflation. And even if inflation comes off of 40-year highs, we just had that CPI print north of 8%, it's still going to be in the mid to low single digits for some period of time. And so when you think about that, and you think about a higher rate environment, a higher cost of capital, you also have to consider the fact that growth is slowing. I mean, we are going to have Europe most likely in a recession from the war in Eastern Europe. We have large parts of China that are still locked down. They're starting to port toward Shanghai reopening at some point early next month. And so I'm not sure how we avoid a period of slower growth and higher prices, which gives you stagflation, and that will weigh on valuations in the public markets. 
there's going to be chop. We're going to see chop over the next several months of consumer discretionary being down with things like gas prices being up, employment markets still choppy. You're going to see some elements of stagflation. It'll be good for hot takes, but in general, bad for valuations. Well, bad for valuations, but here's the deal with that. I mean, stagflation, if you think about where the consumer credit is right now, we saw a massive spike in March in consumer credit. Revolving credit was up 21% year over year. And I just worry about the negative wealth effect from the stock market market, the negative wealth effect that could occur from housing doing a turn. Affordability is not particularly great. And the 30-year mortgage literally just doubled over the last three to four months. And here's one thing. And I think if you're listening to OK Computer and you're really focused on technology and Web3 and you love all that stuff, that's great. I'm going to talk about a really boring fucking stock right now. It's called Walmart. Okay, And Walmart, as we're talking, is down 11%. This is the, one, the largest one-day move for Walmart to the downside in 30-some years. And why? Well, they had a disappointing quarter. Okay, they're feeling the hit from inflationary pressures here. But what's important to me about this, Walmart will come out of this, right? Okay, like Walmart's basically a proxy for the U.S. consumer. Correct. And that's why I think this is really important and why it's important from a sentiment standpoint from the market. This is the first major consumer company. And Amazon had disappointing results last month, but this is it has a different look and feel to it because of the disproportionate amount of sales from Amazon that come from online. Walmart, you're still shopping RRL for the most part. But my contention for the market, it cannot bottom until we have analysts and strategists capitulate on their 2022 earnings estimates. And so when you have a Walmart that helps you do it for the strategists and for the analysts where they guide down. That's really important. So we haven't seen that across the board yet, which is one of the reasons why I think until we do, we're going to see lower lows at some point. So we're going to have bounces if you're a trader. Great. But I think we'll probably bottom out somewhere that's greater than that 20% peak to trough decline for the S&P that we had last week. Because you think that just the general earnings estimates are too high. They're overestimating the consumer who's re-leveraging rotating out of jobs. We might talk layoffs later on. We are going to talk layoffs, but that's really important. I mean, listen, we have unemployment at 3.6% pre-pandemic. The 40-year low before the pandemic was 3.5%. So when you hear all of these companies talking about, and we're going to talk in the private sector, that was actually leading the way in private tech. We're going to see it in crypto. But when you're going to see the sort of cost pressures that some of these major U.S. companies have. Also, if you're a multinational and you have a dollar that's trading where it is at multi-year highs, you got to figure out, are you going to eat some of that hit to your margin? Are you going to try to pass it through to consumers? You're going to cut costs by reducing headcount. So I think that's coming near, near you. And I do think it sets up for a vicious cycle here. So, And you're also seeing the Fed came out and said, worker costs are up. Wages are up 5.2%. Productivity is up 0.3%. So what you're saying is the ROI on that labor is off. So corporations are saying, I can't deal with this wage pressure. I don't have the productivity gains, and I probably don't have the pricing pressure to push that on. Let's bring it back to the stock market for a second here. Gavin Baker from Atreides Management. He's a well-followed tech investor. Great follow on the Twitter this morning. On Tuesday, he tweets out, this is nothing like 2000 valuations for tech peaked in 2020. And he gave a whole host. He said at the peak in 2020 on a cap weighted basis, the 10 largest tech companies in the NASDAQ traded at a 44% discount to the largest tech companies at the 2000 peak. And I think this is really interesting. I mean, listen, Gavin will tell you, and he's been on our podcast before, that he's always early. 
So here's the thing. He might be early right now. Often, but not uncertain. Not uncertain. And there you go. And I, and I love that. I want conviction, yeah. don't you? So I'm just curious. You're obviously exposed to the public markets. You spend most of your time in the private tech markets. How does this feel relative to the peak in 2000? And again, our listener needs to understand this. When the stock market topped out in March of 2000, nobody thought it was the top. Everyone knew that we were in an asset bubble. No one thought it was the top. And it didn't bottom until October of 2002. And the point here that I'm trying to make is that protracted bear market seems like there's something of the past in this age of QE and that sort of thing. So I'm just curious because valuations, it seems like the higher the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield goes or the higher that the Fed has indicated they're going to raise Fed funds is the lower that these valuations could go in some of these high multiple tech stocks. That's exactly right. You saw interest rate cuts drive value asset bubbles for the last 20 years. And what you saw was on a post-September 11th thing, you know, old guys like us who, who lived through this, that saw when the Fed started to cut rates post-September 11th is when the bubble started to inflate. And when you were able to see these valuations start to increase coming off of tech bubble bursting 18 months earlier or 24 months earlier, that's kind of what's happening here, except the difference is the Fed can't adjust for this. There's inflation concerns that 10 years already at around 3%. How much lower can it go? So you took a tool out of the Fed's toolbox and they're incented on the other side, on the inflation side. So that's not going to be the savior this time. And therefore, where does that leave us? Yeah. And back in 2000, I think a lot of companies were very slow to cut costs as it relates to headcount. So here's a tweet from Jeff Richards at GGV, a friend of both of ours. He's been on the pod on a few occasions here. He quote tweeted his own tweet. Do you ever do that? Do you ever quote no. tweet your own? No. It's kind of like talking about yourself in the third person. In the third person. But you know what's so funny about that? It's like, I always wonder, how do these people remember that they tweeted something and how do they go back and find it? It's also a little bit of people who quote their own tweets. So he said, I'm not yeah. sure if you saw yesterday, but I tweeted. So you're saying it live, re- IRL? You're, so you're- in real life, we're on a pod saying, yeah, I'm not sure if you follow me, but just reminding people they're good followers. Well, here, I'm going to do both of those things for Jeff because I think he's a brilliant investor. And he quote tweeted himself. This was a tweet from March 31st. He said, most private tech companies overhired in 2022. Most valuations in 2021 were too high for today's market multiple. So yes, we expect less hiring plus some layoffs already happened. Happening. So he quote tweeted this in this morning. He said, conversation yesterday with CEO that did a 20% headcount reduction in February. We will handily beat the plan this quarter and are so much more focused as a team. You had a response. What's your response to this conversation? So you're, you're trying to trap me here. Who quote my own tweet? <laughs> you quote tweeted Jeff, who quote tweeted himself. I won't read it to you because I think that would be way hypocritical. But just overall, being able to say, Differently from the last series of layoffs, and I've been in this business for over 20 years, and we've seen tough times, and we've seen macro-induced layoffs, we've seen company performance-inducing layoffs, but that tended to be underperformers. I think what's really special about this time is the best-performing companies are laying folks off. And they're saying, hey, maybe the last two years, we should have more empathy, and we should think about people in transition, the pandemic, social unrest. Let's give people a break. Now that we're coming out of that, I think the quality standard has been increased. Quotes Lutman, it's time to amp it up. And I think the best companies are showing leadership. And what 
they're saying is leadership looks like we're going to hold folks accountable and we're going to drive to goals. We're going to have great transparency in our organization around performers and non-performers, and we're going to focus and prioritize our goals. And so whether you're Tim Cook, who said, hey, we're going back to the office, and if you don't come back to the office, there's not going to be a job here for you. I'm paraphrasing what he did with laying off somebody on paternity leave that I'm sure folks have seen. But they're saying, hey, we have a job to do here. And whether you're one of the most valuable companies in the world, some of our best companies that are profitable, have plenty of cash, are reevaluating their current workforces and saying, hey, are these the best people? Can we improve upon these people because we're in a leadership position? Similar to the framework we laid out of making sure you're safe, making sure you have a fortress balance sheet so you've eliminated financing risk, and making sure that you know what your priorities and goals are. Those best companies are going to be in a position to play offense before the folks who don't know what's going on. You know, my friend Dan Turan, you know Dan, he runs Gutter Capital. He just launched a, a VC fund, and he's a former operator. He started a company called Managed by Q, and he sold it to WeWork in 2019. He had a post out this morning. It was actually a letter that he wrote to some of his portfolio companies, and it was things that you won't regret. It was a Medium post, and we'll put this in the show notes. But he hits a whole bunch of things from his experience as a founder, as an operator, and what he's telling. And he's echoing, I think, some of the things that you've discussed on this pod over over the last, I want to say a few months, because you've been talking about some of these things, but he said, evaluate your team with new eyes. There are two important questions to ask here about every single member of your team. Are they necessary and are they excellent? And times like this force you to do those sorts of things. It's a great post. He's actually going to join next week on the pod. It's a great time to get perspective. Many of us are going back to the office. We're coming out of a pandemic. We're coming into a time of greater economic uncertainty. So given all of those things, it's a time for people to almost write a new business plan. So a lot of people, even at Firstmark, are writing a business plan for themselves and saying, hey, this is a great time for us to reset and rethink about how we do things as a company and how we do things as individuals. And those two questions that Dan asks are, is this the team I want to be on the field with, is the most important thing for most businesses. Yeah, no doubt. You know, it's interesting you mentioned the Apple firing the gentleman who was on paternity leave. The headline that hit the tape today was Apple delays plans to have staff in office three days a week. So it just seems like we're still in COVID times here. There was a headline that went up on Bloomberg today when I'm staring at my screens in red, which means it's in important that New York City says that COVID's on high alert here. So it just seems like fits and start from COVID are not ending anytime soon. And when companies like Apple, who spent gazillions of dollars building that Cupertino headquarters a few years ago, and they still, two years into this pandemic, don't have workers who are going to be back in there three days a week. But then on the flip side of it, they're firing people because they don't want to come back. It seems like we're going to have a pretty fucked up tech workforce for some time. You know what that's great for? The companies that show true leadership. The companies that say, hey, we're either a remote culture and we're going to be remote. We trust you and we're going to have a very deliberate culture of remote. Or we're an in-office culture. We're going to have a very deliberate in-office culture. And here's what we're going to do. And they're going to put it on the wall of their office. The CEO and the founders are going to clearly communicate that. That's who will benefit from it. Big companies always do stupid big company things of flip-flopping, sending missed messages, not communicating clearly. It's really the opportunities of the small companies, the venture-backed companies who can be nimble, can communicate directly, and can set culture because they're at that point of their development. It's kind of interesting to me because six months ago, you couldn't find engineers. It just didn't exist in the pay comp that people were getting to kind of leave one organization to go to another. 
Now we're hearing a lot of private companies are going to be cutting. We just went through this whole conversation. And so we're going to start seeing it in public. We're seeing what Uber had to say, Coinbase, they're kind of refocusing on profitability in the private market. So that means even if you're tamping back your hiring expectations or actually making some cuts, there's going to be a lot of good people out there. Or you might say there's a lot of people who didn't deserve those jobs at those compensation levels. And we're going to see this in Web3 also. We've had conversations with, hey, it was impossible to pull Dan out of Amazon or Shopify when the stock was at 1700 Now the stock's at 600 Can we go pull Dan out of that company and offer him a better opportunity? The golden handcuffs have kind of faded away, and embedded value from long-term options has kind of faded away. And therefore, if you see somebody, go get them. That's the opportunity to play offense for companies who are ahead of the curve. I'll just say this. You just mentioned Shopify, and I know this was a name with you and Amish. You guys have been invested for a very long time, and it's just kind of interesting on a day like today. I just said the NASDAQ's up nearly 3% now. It keeps going higher as we're talking here, and Shopify is trading at 372. It traded as low as 308 last week. It traded as high as 1762 in November. Okay, so as high as 1762 in November, 372 today, and it was 308 last week. I mean, the stock's only up 3.5% today. Only up 3.5%. I know, but Rick, the NASDAQ is up 2.7%. My point is, is that you would expect a stock like this with a beta like this to be up 10% or something like that on a day like today. And I'm just bringing this up. Great company, great management. I saw that Toby said to him, he's your partner over Twitter, that he just put in an order to buy $10 million worth of the stock. That got the stock going a little bit. So I only bring this up. I'm not picking on this company or the stock in particular. I'm just making the point as someone who is obsessed with public markets the way you are with private tech, that doesn't look great. What I'm saying is for the NASDAQ, it leads me to believe that we're going to see lower lows in a lot of these names. For everybody, more visibility, it shows that there's sellers out there. And so part of this is that we can broaden this conversation out a little bit and we can talk about, so when you see deleveraging, when rates going high and you see funds deleveraging, sometimes it's just like these stocks overshot to the upside, just like valuations in the private markets overshot the upside. Everybody knew they were crazy, but you're just going along for the ride. What changed? Rates started going up a lot. And so now on the flip side of that is like, do we overshoot on the downside? You could tell me, well, when Shopify went through 1,000, it was down 1,700 to 1,000. Well, that was enough. Well, then when it went to 800, that was enough. When it went to 600, you just don't know. That's my experience of trading through two protracted bear markets, the one in the dot-com and the one in the financial crisis. And so, I don't know, man, 20% in the S&P last week and down 30% in the NASDAQ, it got me thinking we're almost there. But the one difference is time. From my experience, It's time that's going to take for things to bottom out. It's not always price. I think it's both. But no one's going to call the bottom, right? So if you're not thinking about calling the bottom, and we like to take the longest view in the room. So if we think about the next 10 years, we're not going to try and call a bottom. We're going to say, this is a company we really like at a valuation we think is fair. And we're going to invest. And whether that's in the private markets or the public markets or whatever it is, valuations are down significantly. Everybody's been re-rated. Multiples are at levels we haven't seen for eight or nine years. Is that where it's going to settle? I don't know. But I know the great companies can execute through that. So we're thinking more about the company side than if there's 10 or 20% more downside in a multiple. 
How is what's going on in the public markets? And again, you keep a close eye on it and you talk to a lot of operators in the public markets, a lot of investors in the public. How is it kind of informing you how you're deploying capital right now? There's a lot of stuff on Twitter. You know this about doom and gloom scenarios for valuations and who can get capital at what price? Can be a down round? Is this that whatever? What do runways look like? All that sort of stuff. How are you guys thinking about it, at least for your existing companies right now? And then how are you thinking about deploying new capital? I just signed a term sheet yesterday. So, you know, we're out in the market deploying capital. We think it's a great opportunity for the best companies. So either whether that's a de novo company in the restaurant tech space, in the seed space with a great entrepreneur who has a lot of experience. And then in addition to that, we've gone back to our best companies and put more capital in them now that they've been re-rated. So we feel great about deploying capital in the best companies. Separately, we're seeing very few people feel that way. There's a lot of money on the sidelines saying, hey, I don't know if the market's going up or down. To your point before, I'm going to wait till there's a bottom because I don't want to sit there and try and pick a bottom. And I don't feel compelled to put capital to work because I'm still licking my wounds from last year. A lot of people are afraid to look stupid. So I don't want to look stupid by deploying what might be fall of 2000. People are looking for opportunities to get in especially in the growth sector of the market, until the IPO market reopens, which probably looks like the fall at the earliest, nobody's going to want to get into growth because the liquidity discount's too great. So we're seeing a lot of bad behavior. We're seeing term sheets get retraded. We're seeing valuation adjustments, both in private rounds as well as M&A transactions. In the large part, you hope that you're dealing with the great people who have a lot of integrity and could work through that. But it's still a mess out there. All right. So talk to me about this. When did you make your first investments in Pinterest, Airbnb, Shopify, DraftKings? I'm thinking like at least 10 years ago in some of them. It was probably two or three months after Lehman fell. In the beginning of 2009, that I met the guys from Pinterest. And it was two guys with a great idea, with a lot of megatrends behind them, and they were fantastic entrepreneurs. And despite all the chaos going on, Ben wanted to quit his job at Google to go do this, which showed a significant amount of entrepreneurial ambition and grit. So this is the time to invest. But are you investing in individuals at this point? Because there's going to be no shortage of very special entrepreneurs who are going to leave a lot of great tech companies, whether they be public or private, but big ones because the stocks have come down or their options are under, whatever the hell it is. Were you investing in individuals? Were you investing in the idea? Was it a combination of both? Combination of both. I mean, what you see is over the last parts of the cycle, the teams were very diluted. So you might have had an exceptional solo founder. You might have had an exceptional leader and a team you didn't feel as strongly about. But what you're seeing is the superheroes coming together and you're seeing a lot of strength on the business side, on the technology side, depth to the technology team. So there's less dilution of those teams, which is great. And there's probably even a little bit more thought behind the idea that not because you can't get anything funded, it requires the entrepreneur to grind on that idea a little bit more. It requires more people thinking through an idea. So you come up with a better idea, which might be more orthogonal. And therefore, you're seeing a higher quality of company at any stage. And the best time probably for us is at the seed stage where the burn is already low the entrepreneurs are excellent and they have time. And what you want is the time to be able to execute and put them almost in a little bubble for some period of time where they don't have to worry about the external markets. They don't have to worry about hitting external milestones. You can work with them. It can hit internal milestones and they can execute and build a great product. 
All right, so with Ben, the mega trend was mobile, social, e-commerce, the confluence of them. All right, so just last question here before we get out of here. What would you say, let's just say we have another rocky year. What are the mega trends? And it's building on obviously mobile and social and e-commerce and social commerce and AI and VR and AR. I mean, like we'll throw every fucking buzzword in there. Is there any mega trend that 10 years from now, well, hopefully we won't be podcasting, but maybe we'll, I don't know. Maybe we'll, but 10 years from now, what will we look back and say in the wake of the Jay Powell crash of 2022, what was the mega trend looking back? That's a hard question, but I'll take a go at it. I think on the enterprise side, it's going to continue to be AI. I think what you're continuing to see is there'll be a tight labor market regardless of what happens on the other side of the Powell crash. And what we're going to see is the ability for computers to do more and more and more sophisticated jobs. And we're already seeing great companies like Ada being able to do it and applying the Turing logic. So that'll be an incredible efficiency and productivity tool. I think we're probably only in the second or third inning there. On the consumer side, I think you're going to continue to see consumer empowerment. You think about healthcare, consumers taking control of their healthcare, being able to use data, being less deferential to the system. The same thing in financial services and financial technology. I think you're seeing a consumer empowerment there. They won't call it data analytics, but really understanding where your dollars go, how you're spending your money, how you're borrowing money, how you're investing your money, and the amount of tools that exist out there and the simplicity of using those tools um, will empower people in you know two of the largest industries of, of healthcare and financial technologies. And that'll build a lot of huge companies, which will disrupt some of the biggest companies in the country today. All right. Well, I'm so glad you didn't say Web3 unlocks. Um, no, that will probably be part of it. We're going to get into that with Trevor Marshall of Current and Meltem Demiris from CoinShares. Stick around. Rick, thanks for joining me. Thank you. Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash OK. That's current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Trevor Marshall is the CTO of Current, a company he co-founded in 2015. Before Current, Trevor worked as a fixed income analyst at Morgan Stanley from 2013 to 2015. Okay, we're back. We have a very special guest, CTO, co-founder of Current, Trevor Marshall. Current is a presenting sponsor of OK Computer. Welcome. Thank you, sir. All right. And obviously, I have Meltem Dumers. You know her from CoinShares. She is the chief strategy officer. She is my very capable co-host here today. Meltem, how are you? 
I'm just spectacular. What's what's good with you, Dan? Well, listen, you and I had a pretty heady conversation last week with Packy. And at the time, it really felt like crypto. I know you hate when I use that term, but I'm like kind of the normie of the group here. Crypto was on kind of the verge of a funky period in a way. I mean, if you think about it, we knew the coins were kind of down, the big ones down 50% or so from those highs last fall. We had a very unstable coin breaking and it hadn't exactly broken to almost zero at that point. You know, what we're talking about. We just got off of that Yuga Labs, the Bored Apes metaverse minting of their other side. I think it was called the other side or something. Nearly broke Ethereum for a little bit there and then the cost of the mint. So there was a lot of like bad news. I wanted to bring Trevor here into this conversation a little bit because I know that you very closely follow the space. You're a practitioner. You helped build a company, which was current with the crypto ethos into your product offering. You and I haven't talked in about a month. You were on on the tape with me and Stuart Sock your co-founder. And we we're talking about just kind of some of the reasons why we might see a softening period where sentiment is bad, maybe for the right reason, but it didn't make you any less confident in your long-term view. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is stress test period. And Meltem as well has seen tons of these stress test periods. And this is actually where you shake out a lot of some of the things that were going unnoticed before. Certain beliefs slash practices, which really just don't stand up in periods of huge volatility. You know, everything from, yes, the way that algorithmic stablecoins can work and, and should work, but also all the derivatives and the applications built on top of that. There was, over the past week, I've seen exploits where people were hard coding certain stablecoin values under this, like, false assumption that, hey, every peg is going to be maintained forever. While it does come at the cost of investors, you know, everyone who's in the space should be in it from the pioneering mindset. And doing, hopefully, a little bit more diligence around how certain components work. And not just the whole Terra and Luna thing, but just like more broadly, everything else that is built on top of that, next to it. Thinking, hopefully, opening up conversations again around, well, how could algorithmic stablecoins work? Where is the purpose and the place for reserves? That conversation is coming up, and that's a good thing. So let me push back for one second, Trevor, because, you know, there's a lot of skeptics within crypto, but primarily from outside of crypto who've looked at stable coins, and they've been talking about Tether for years. And I know Meltem and I have been talking about that. So now all of a sudden we have an algorithmic stable coin that just broke. And I think the only way to describe it is a lot of people just say it's a Ponzi. It just didn't work and really enriched a lot of the people that were at the center of this sort of thing. And really thinking about what's the juxtaposition versus a collateralized stablecoin, which is more on the tether side, right? But there's been, as Melton might say, a lot of FUD around that. What is the collateral, right? And what does it look like? So I'm just curious, you're a math guy, you're an engineer, you've been in the space for a long time. Were you looking at algorithmic stablecoins and saying to yourself, something doesn't smell right here? Well, even when you look at sort of central bank controlled pegs, take Hong Kong dollar as a good example, like the way that that's managed is also effectively an algorithm. There's sort of a playbook in which you're managing a range. And the way that that's accomplished is through a ton of foreign reserves. And this is what you're pegging against. And I think Hong Kong has hundreds of billions of dollars, has a ton of foreign reserves to help stabilize those pegs. And you can only really do that when you have the sufficient reserve against it. But there is a mechanism that's happening there because they are effectively minting and burning by purchasing and selling assets against sort of that currency. So when I look at really strong example of an algorithmic stablecoin, it's really in the like the MakerDAO space, which has more explicit reserves, but still has the debt auction maker issuance, which is very similar 
to sort of the Luna mechanic that's built in there. So I think it's not so much a complete, hey, let's just go back to the drawing board on algorithmic stable coins. It's really just like, let's see what went wrong here and where other protocols and other projects have strengths. I can jump in here. Here's what went wrong. When you use collateral that is endogenous to your own system to maintain the peg, that is a recipe for disaster. For Luna, what happened is you have high reflexivity in both directions. So on the way up, right, because you take Luna, you use it as collateral to mint UST, the stable coin, which you can then utilize to get this 20% APY that feels quote unquote riskless because you're farming that APY using stable coin that causes an insane amount of reflexivity on the upside. And we saw that reflected in the price of Luna ballooning really quickly. However, it also cuts the opposite way on the way down. And we saw this unfold over the course of the last week, where we went from having a billion of Luna tokens in circulation to at one point, I think over 3 trillion, because there's more Luna being minted repeatedly to try to maintain that peg. And if we look at Tether, and Tether FUD is like one of those things that never dies. It never dies. Tether, USDC, and other stable coins are backed one-to-one by high-quality capital reserves that are exogenous to those systems. And in this instance, right, I believe in Tether, the majority of the reserve they hold is in cash and cash equivalents. Same thing we see USDC. They might have a little bit of commercial paper, right? They'd manage it the same way a treasurer manages cash on the balance sheet, right? You have a significant amount of cash and cash equivalents you can liquidate quickly to cover any potential redemption requests, but then you have some of your assets, maybe 5 to 10% in sort of longer term maturities that generate some form of yield. But I think one of the challenges here is we're trying to create these things in crypto that are endogenous and highly reflexive, and that simply doesn't work, especially as crypto becomes more embedded in sort of traditional capital markets in the broader financial system. And as potentially some of these other assets that we may have historically conceived to be exogenous are actually highly systemically correlated related to crypto. And I think that's the big concern with stablecoin regulation. Today's stablecoins are still quite small. On aggregate, there's around $200 billion of stablecoins in circulation compared to, you know, trillions of dollars of M1 and M2 money supply. But as the amount of capital and as the amount of dollars and euros and GBP and other assets we put on-chain increases, I think it creates these really interesting challenges where potentially those assets themselves could be impacted by what happens in crypto and vice versa. So like this interesting contagion risk emerges. And again, I think it's part of the result of as these systems grow and evolve and become more complex, the variables that we previously may have believed were exogenous or outside of these systems instead become internalized and they become potentially self-referencing, which then creates effectively this house of cards. It's very easy to topple and just exacerbates itself in moments of crises. So Trevor, what do you make though of you had FUD around all of these stable coins at one point tether, I think traded like 95 cents a couple days ago. But we also see data in Meltem updated us last week. It was a big week for inflows. It continues to be a big week for inflows. When you see periods like this where it seems like the sentiment's really bad, a lot of things are going wrong. 
So Meltem quoted last week that the average peak to trough decline, I think, in Bitcoin from its inception was like 80%. So here we are at the lows just a couple of days ago. We were down 50 60% or so. When you see the sort of things like all these different moving parts, you see institutional adoption, which seems to be increasing despite the price coming down. Do you get increasingly bullish? Like you just started off this conversation by saying, listen, we're going to have these phases here. But for practitioners like you who are building, it just presents opportunity. No doubt. And of course, I'm very biased by having at least watched a lot of this from pretty early days and seeing a lot of those 80% declines and feeling those 80% declines. I bought Luna last week because I was hoping for that exogenous capital to come through and save the day. Honestly, it was to me a risk reward sort of situation where like all it would take is someone to come in and at least prop it for a little bit. But fundamentally, I think the weighing machine, the way that thing works, won out a lot faster than I thought it would from a trading perspective. But overall, it forces more attention into how some of these things can function. I think to earlier comment Melton made around the exogenous nature of different stablecoin reserves. A lot of what I hope this also reveals is that Bitcoin is not exogenous to another asset. We often think, oh, Bitcoin's the stable person in the crowd. But at the end of the day, when LFG was out there dumping $3 billion of Bitcoin, that is what the contagion that we saw triggered a whole bunch of other things. And so, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how more people in the pure algorithmic stablecoin type of space, whether it's through the vault management system in MakerDAO or these new proposals for like actually issuing treasuries as additional collateral that are backed into another crypto asset. It's going to be really interesting to see what learnings come through on that. There's a couple of people working on some interesting things I've seen recently, but yeah. What I really like about this period, to your earlier question, is this is when solutions emerge. When everything is ripping and everyone's happy, you don't really get forced to solve hard problems. In these situations where there's a fire, a lot of focus, there's a lot of progress that gets made in the fundamental economic structure of these things, the technical structure of these things. Just watching, hey, what happens if we lift the minting cap in Luna? That didn't go well. And that's for the history books in terms of how this stuff can work. So Meltem, are you any less confident? I know that you invest in a lot of products individually. You look at a lot of private opportunities as it relates to your work with coin shares. When you look at a period like this, are you seeing opportunities? I know that in more traditional Web2 tech, let's say we're seeing valuations come in, we're seeing a slowdown in some hiring, we're seeing lots of stories about focus more on profitability and not growth at any cost. I'm just curious, how is this shaking out within the crypto landscape? And again, I know this is happening over the last few weeks or so. Things felt a lot better just a few weeks ago. Should we not be thinking this on a tick-by-tick basis here? I think it's a great question. Look, at the end of the day, I think people are waking up. They're realizing the things that they invested in, in their portfolios, out of their venture funds, out of their growth equity funds, in public markets. They're waking up. They were drunk the last 18 months, myself included. I'm looking at some of the stuff in my portfolio, and I'm like, what? Was I thinking? Not my crypto dick butt though, right? No, crypto dick butts are one dick equals one butt. It's math. Wow, one to one. That's all I needed to hear. But look, I think people are looking around and it is really challenging. It's like, you know this and Trevor, you're probably like, I have also done this. Like we all know this. For example, you know, investing in the Snowflake IPO, I knew that was a bad price. Investing in certain crypto assets, like you know it's a bad price. Buying Zoom at a 1200 forward price to earnings multiple, you know that doesn't make sense. But at the moment, it's the zeitgeist. Everyone's doing it. Everyone's making all this money. And you're like, 
am I really going to try to write of the bell curve this? Am I going to try to be smarter than the market? And sometimes you just do things that don't necessarily make sense. Speaking from fundamentals perspective, they make sense in the moment. And I think a lot of people are waking up right now and they're realizing like some of these things I did do not make sense. Now, fortunately, I think if you're self-aware, you size those things appropriately. My project coin shares, those are very, very tiny, tiny portion of what we allocated to from an investing perspective. In my PA, it's a small allocation and it's also money that's play money anyways. I think the challenge is when you are deploying capital on behalf of your LPs or even worse, and Trevor, I imagine this is something you have to think about at current. When you are managing other people's money, you have to think about that. You have to have the right risk management practices in place. And so I think the challenge is how is this going to play out now that the environment has changed so much? And look at the end of the day, not everyone's going to survive. Not everything's going to survive. And also people don't want to keep building. If you raise 10 million bucks, you're paying yourself 500K a year as a founder, your team's getting fat ass salaries. And you're telling them you're going to take a pay cut. The product we're building is not really going anywhere. It doesn't really have any users. Like, they also don't want to stay. There are protests at all these companies where people's options are underwater. If you're a millionaire on paper and all of a sudden you wake up and that's gone, that's tough. So I think a lot of people are going to find new things to do. I think the pendulum is going to swing. It's normal. It's part of the cycle. Again, if people had some form of discipline, hopefully it doesn't blow them up. But I do think a lot of people lost all sense of reality. And unfortunately, they find themselves in a position where the damage that's been done is going to take a while to recover from. I think if we look at the macro environment, if we look at the geopolitical environment, if we look even at things like levels of consumer debt and a decline in consumer spending, the signs are all there. The environment's getting a little tighter and the bar is being raised. And go back to fundamentals. You know, I always talk about there are three laws in physics, there are three laws in finance it's your cash flow, your balance sheet, and your income statement. You can suspend disbelief, you can make magic, you can hire all the celebrities you want to endorse your whatever it is. But at the end of the day, if you don't make money, I'm sorry, you don't get to play. Last year, it was what they call the price before the all-time highs, just the all-time high. Like it's just gains beget gains. And you don't have to wake up from that drunken rampage of purchasing things. Meltem, you just described, and I know that you have good chops as it comes to macroeconomics, and you just described a kind of framework that was in place, I think, in the mid-aughts into the financial crisis, into the housing crisis, because people were getting drunk on the wealth that they thought that existed in their home, and they were taking out cheap mortgages against that home, and then they were buying other homes. If you think about it, and I think you've talked about this, the financialization of everything. That's a term that you've used on our podcast. I've seen you talk about it on lots of different instances. And Well, Dan, we've now financialized our friendship with these crypto dick butts. I've gotten you to buy into my Ponzi. Go check out my PFP on Twitter right now. Damn, now I have FOMO for dick butts. I think it's really important to hear active practitioners think about things as it relates to other cycles. And Trevor and Stuart and I have actually had a lot of macro conversations as it relates to, let's say, your customer base and what you're seeing and the things that you're building for them. And I'm just curious, in periods like this, and understanding that we just went through this meme stock thing, and then we went through this meme crypto thing. And I think, Meltem, again, you use this as investing as entertainment. You are the meme queen of crypto Twitter here. So I'm just curious how you guys think about it. Are you 
you seeing some of your customers who have your wallet current? It looks like a crypto wallet. We've talked about that. Are they feeling discouraged? Are they feeling like they bought into, and I don't mean as it relates to crypto, but we were in a macroeconomic environment where things felt really easy anywhere you look. Anything that wasn't bolted down, whether it was stocks or crypto or watches or even real estate, it's just all going up and everyone wanted in. Yeah. I mean, for us, the strategy is the same, which is the bigger issue here is that most people don't have access to that ownership. And I think a big reason why you get meme stocks and meme cryptos is because it's the first time that people can own something and like sort of share in the value creation that's happening, where they can actually be a part of something together, where they're actually seeing a very tangible change into the way that they might be able to live. Now, a lot of people when in these periods of crashes have a sobering reality check. But there's still, and this is something I fundamentally believe in crypto, there's still a very long road ahead in terms of we're talking about a major shift away from the way that money works into the new way that money works. And part of what we're building at Current is to enable people to get access to that ownership in the long-term perspective. So in many ways, like launching stuff now is probably the best possible opportunity for customers on these lows. Like you don't necessarily want to release, for example, something like crypto trading on all-time highs. No doubt. In Meltem, you guys at CoinShares, I mean, you're basically building products for anybody to access. Really, it doesn't matter whether you're at highs or lows. And one of the things I think is really interesting is somebody who's a markets pundit in a way, have you guys noticed that it seems like so three years ago having a Bitcoin target price People are kind of done with that. But it seemed like on our show on CNBC, like people were coming over, tripping over each other to have those sorts of targets. You and I had met in 2017. I think a lot of our listeners know that. It was in that retail frenzy, if you will. But you kind of went heads down and just built for years during this. So I'm just curious, Trevor, you've been doing this for almost a decade. You've been following this space very closely. Meltem, you're more than a half a decade here in building institutional grade products, but also from a retail perspective, you are a active practitioner. How long do you think we're going to be in this phase where if you just look at a two-year chart of Bitcoin or if you want to look at the total market cap of the coins where we're going to be below that double top high, just say in market cap terms, are we in for quarters, years, or do you think that there are some catalysts that re-energize both retail and institutions and make new highs at some point? I think the total market cap was what, two and a half trillion-ish or something like that? You've had Stuart on. Yeah. He's an Elliott Wave guy. He's been my mentor in everything my whole career, so I'm now also kind of an Elliott Wave guy. This feels a lot like a Wave 4 if we're looking bigger, longer term, and that's over like sort of the life cycle of crypto. So this is probably a big 4. And a big 4s are usually shorter than the 2s. The 2 is really painful back in 2015 to wherever you measure the 2017 spike, you can measure it in different places. But I don't know, for me, if you're looking on that time scale, it's probably quarters, but this is just speculation. Yeah. Just to look at the data we're seeing, right? So again, you know, I love to bring the receipts. I think one of the things we're seeing, one of the things we track is weekly fund flows, which is inflows and outflows into structured crypto products, which sort of are a good indicator of both institutional appetite, but also retail buyer appetite because structured products are generally bought through brokerage accounts, right? So it doesn't require setting up a wallet. It's sort of a nice temperature check on more conservative, more traditional investors, not crazy people like us who basically jump through hoops of fire to trade crypto. So if we look at flows two weeks ago, when Bitcoin first started dropping, we had about a 10% drop. We saw net 45 million of inflows into Bitcoin. Last week, which we reported yesterday on Monday, we saw over 150 million of inflows into Bitcoin products, despite Bitcoin dropping close to 15%. 
even more, actually, I think closer to 20% if we look at the low lows, right, around 27, 5, 28,000. So what this indicates to us is people are looking at opportunities to accumulate. And I think that that's really important. We talked about this on Fast Money, Dan. People are trying to dollar cost average in. This is an attractive entry point. I always tell people we have higher highs, but also higher lows. But at the end of the day, one of the things I'm really passionate about and that I think is so important for people who are in this space and who are publicly talking about the space, a lot of people are building channels and conduits for access, and that's great, and access is important, but access in and of itself is not enough. You also are accountable, I think, to your customers and to the market for providing intelligence. And the one thing that seems to be lacking from crypto sometimes is signs of intelligent life. And I think this is kind of how I measure tops, is like the more echo chambery and detached from any sort of intelligent commentary that crypto Twitter and like crypto media gets the closer we are to the top. Every wave we have people coming in, promoting all sorts of things. You as someone who participates in this market, talks about this market and is building financial products for people looking at this market, there is a certain level of intelligence I think you should bring to the table, a certain level of data-driven insight. We've tried to do that. Perhaps we grow more slowly, but simply throwing up your hands and saying like, oh, we just provide access, like we're not liable. I don't know how I feel about that. I think long-term people have relationships with brands. The reason a lot of people still have money managers and use a brokerage that they've had for a long time is like people do invest in relationships. And so one of the things I think about a lot just at a personal level, but also at the coin shares level is like, how do we invest in that relationship? How do we invest in helping bring intelligent commentary, intelligent analysis to market? I'm not going to tell you what to do or what to think, but I'm going to give you actionable intelligence to allow you to make informed decisions. And then I'm going to give you the tools to act on that. So I think it's just really important as everything becomes financialized. What does that look like for companies like Trevor's, for companies like mine, and just how do we keep ourselves accountable? And I think that is going to be the big question coming out of this. There are a lot of people who are not holding themselves accountable, who had more than a small role to play here, and that needs to be reconciled. More than a small role. I mean, listen, we're a year on from Elon Musk's appearance on Saturday Night Live when Doge went from a fraction of a penny to nearly 80 cents or something. And people were in it for the culture. And they were in it because he's the most genius person that, and I actually don't think he's a person, I think he's a fucking alien. And think about that. Think of all the bag holders. That thing topped out. What was the culture there? So here we are a year later. He doesn't mention that anymore. He's got some meme bid for Twitter right now. And I'm just saying, who's accountable for that? Why is none of these nerds that follow him on Twitter, why is he not accountable? Because Robinhood was held accountable. You know why they were held accountable? Because customers left. They were pissed off at what happened in the first part of 2021. And then the stock price cratered 80%. You know why? Because in their second quarter, the quarter that they went public, a disproportionate amount of the revenues came from trading of Dogecoin because Elon Musk was memeing about it. So we reached a level of absolute insanity. So it's amazing for me to sit down with two practitioners like yourself who actually seem like you give a shit about the people that your products or your commentary are bringing into this new ecosystem. All right, there's my little rant here. 
I want to hit one thing here really quickly because A16Z crypto, they had a report out, I think today it was the state of crypto 2022. One of the points that we took out of it, I thought was really interesting. So we're still early. And I think both of you guys would agree on this. And I want to hit you on this, Trevor, because I think this is something that speaks to how you are thinking about rolling out products for your customers. The quote here was, uh, we estimate there's somewhere between 7 million and 50 million active Ethereum users today based on various on-chain metrics. Analogizing this to early commercial internet that puts us somewhere between 1995 in terms of development, the internet reached 1 billion users by 2005. So 10 years later, incidentally, right around the time Web2 started taking shape and amid the founding of future giants such as Facebook and YouTube. So I'm just curious where you are thinking about this. You've obviously been around for a decade. You've been investing in the ecosystem. It's really been important about your thought process professionally, how you're building financial tools. How early are we in this? I think we're around AOL, Yeah, if we had to guess. Like dial-up shit? The accelerant of introduction. I think it's access, but also like when you've got that disk for AOL, there was a lot of education that had to happen at the same time, which is exactly what Meltem's alluding to here, which is we're in the mode where not only do you have to give the disk in the mail, you have to provide some instruction on how this thing works. There was a lot of guardrails for how AOL worked in the early days. And I think that's kind of where we're at now, which is most people don't have access yet. Most people just, they can go to Cash App and get some Bitcoin. They can go to other, they can go to Coinbase, but- But they're actually not even getting it at the Cash App or PayPal, right? It's just something that looks like almost an ETF of that thing because you don't have the keys, right? Yeah, I guess the method of acquisition is different. You don't need to own your own ISP to be on the internet kind of thing. I don't know if that's the best analogy, but it's in the zone, which is to say the actual utility that people need to get from these things, which for Ethereum is like buying NFTs. It's potentially integrating with some communities. There's obviously the price speculation, but we're starting like the last two years have been really about transitioning towards utility and transitioning towards things that go beyond price action, which is really where it was for the first seven or eight years. Right. So Meltem, how do you think, because I love it when you say, I'm in it for the culture, Dan. And that is important because if you can't build culture around some of this stuff, it's really hard to get people to think about what future utility is. And I'm just curious, are we going to see like a massive intersection of that over the next, let's say, year or so? Because without the speculation of a project, do you get the culture? Do you get the people interested? And you've also talked about what were the incentives, right, for participating in, let's say, the Luna Terra thing. Well, you had massive percentage rates that you might be able to get as far as yield. So I'm curious, are we going to see an intersection of that in this next phase here? That's a great question. I mean, what I always like to say is, and it's unpopular, but I think it's true, is greed is the flywheel that drives much of (laughs) crypto innovation. And again, that's not a judgment. It's just an observation. Greed is certainly part of the flywheel that drives Bitcoin. And I think a lot of what has brought people into the crypto space is greed, right? If someone's making millions of dollars trading pictures of pixelated digital monkeys, you're like, I want to get some of that. And so I think a lot of people come because of greed. And I think that's perfectly normal. That's perfectly human. We all want to improve our lives and our financial situation, zero judgment. And then a lot of people end up staying because they find it really interesting. The people are really fascinating. What they get to work on is really cool, but we do see every cycle, a lot of people leave. In the last cycle, they left to become cannabis influencers or to do cannabis SPACs. 
that sort of worked its way through. And now like the SPAC grift is done. So who knows what they'll do next. I think Burning Man is back this year. Like they're all going to be at Burning Man together, spending the last of their crypto gains. So who knows what grift they'll move on to next. I just think anytime there's a lot of capital, there's a lot of innovation, there's a lot of big ideas happening. It attracts a lot of different types of personalities. And some of them obviously are very short-term driven. What I think is more interesting, what I focus on, is how culture shifts and how crypto is permeating popular culture. And one thing you and I have talked about, Dan, in 2020, that's the first time in my adult life, and I'm in my mid-30s, closer to 40 than I am to 30, when the pandemic happened, that is the first time in my adult life that I had ever heard people in popular culture talking about monetary and fiscal policy. J-Pow and the Money Printer is the first time that the conversation around seniorage and inflation had ever entered the national zeitgeist. People were making TikToks about it. We would Cardi B talking about inflation. So I think this really interesting thing is happening. FinTech helped people understand. FinTech made it sexy to care about what banks do and like what current does, right? is you abstract out some of these layers of banking and try to compress that. But fintech really put a focus on what happens in the financial system and made people realize, wait, there's a whole lot of value here that can be unbundled. Crypto is sort of this next wave that makes people look at fintech, banking, all of these ideas around how companies work and networks work and making us say like, wait a minute, there's a lot we can do here. But what's interesting is fintech never entered the cultural zeitgeist and never entered the national consciousness. Crypto has. Everyone knows what Bitcoin is. People are talking about these things. That to me is what's most interesting. What comes out of that, unclear to me, but whatever it is, I think it's going to be a staggering and the likes of it is going to be something we've probably never seen before and we'll never see again in our lifetimes. So I'm excited. Well, you make a great point because Post-financial crisis, there was also Occupy Wall Street, which didn't really catch on, but it was really, I think, some of the censorship resistance and some- Yeah, but Dan, they were poor. I'm sorry. Let me just be very direct. They had no money, okay? Money is power. (laughs) And you guys have Lambos and huge tattoos of lunatics on your arms, too. We have money. That is the key difference. Money buys you a lot. Money is power. The reason people talk about crypto- a lot of money flying around. We'll just be very candid. And it's very sexy. Anytime you have a lot of money, a lot of crazy people, and a lot of crazy ideas, you're going to get eyeballs. You brought up the sexiness of macroeconomics. We're going to get out of here. But one last question I have for Trevor is this, is that, okay, think about this, right? So over the last, let's call it four months, we've seen the highest expectations for inflation that our country has seen in 40 years. And if you think about where the US dollar is, right, you think where where rates are right now, and you think about the way that crypto has acted during this period, it's really lost half of its value for all intents and purposes, but let's focus on Bitcoin. So my question to you is if we're just, let's say, four or five or six months away from maybe the Fed turning back on that money printer, if you will, because let's say we go into a recession. Let's say we do have inflationary pressures that were brought on by COVID and by the war in Europe. Let's say they abate a bit. Is this a catalyst that you see between now and year end for Bitcoin to maybe find some support? Maybe it's somewhere between 20,000 and 30,000 and then kind of go back towards those highs in the next, let's call it six to nine months. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a liquidity machine. At that point, it's like you've got a fixed amount of things and then an unfixed amount of things. And so if the dollar goes and lunas it and just goes nuts, then if you've got a fixed asset base like Bitcoin, then that 
will just work itself out math-wise. One last question, and for you, Melton, Trevor just said he bought a little crypto. He didn't say which. Last week, I bought some ETH and some Solana, and I hadn't bought ETH either in a long time. And, and I will be very frank, and I know like a fraction of anything about any of this. When I think about those two, I think of them about as high growth, high valuation, unprofitable tech. That's my allocation towards those. And I think regular listeners of OK Computer know I don't really care for Bitcoin. I don't like the religiousness of all of it. And I don't like people like Jack Dorsey. They really make me nervous, to be really frank. But religion's very profitable, Dan. Yeah, and I'm an atheist. But I guess my point to you is, do you buy always? Do you dollar cost average, not caring whether the price is down or up? Or do you wait for opportunities? Because last summer was really interesting when we're banging around 1700 to 2000 in ETH and about 28000 to 30000 for months. And then we took off in a way. I'm just curious how you think about it. Do you only buy when you get these corrections or do you also add? And I'm talking to the major layer ones that you're all in on. Yeah, I would say for me, I am a net buyer of Bitcoin. So I'm always looking for opportunities to add Bitcoin. I'm not a buyer yet. So I'm waiting. I think there's more pain. I think what we're seeing right now is like a little bit of a recovery, but I'm going to wait and see how things unfold. I think things are going to get uglier before they get prettier. I could be wrong, but I'm going to wait a little bit. I'm going to wait on ETH. I think the merge, there's no way it will happen in 2022. I know that makes people mad. I don't think proof of stake ever needs to happen, candidly. Very unpopular opinion, but I think over the coming months and quarters, it's going to be very clear why that's the case. Miners and, and stable coins are going to have a lot to do with that. Ethereum is not like Bitcoin because Ethereum is a state machine. You can't very easily fork Ethereum. It was done in 2017, but there was nothing built on top of Ethereum yet. Today, Ethereum is like a vibrant multi-trillion dollar ecosystem that sustains a ton of smart contracts and economic activity. The merge is going to be, if it goes through, will be just absolutely devastating. And also just this technically extremely difficult. Like it's really an unsolved problem. That's why I bought Polkadot last week. Delegated proof of stake has different mechanics at play that I personally believe in. I'm also not a maximalist in the trustlessness of Bitcoin. I also bought Bitcoin last week. So do you think the realization of this, if you guys are right on ETH and this move towards proof of stake, do you think that there's a lot of people who are going to be like, get the fuck out? No, honestly, it works. It still functions. Today, it's got a lot going for it. I don't think it needs to evolve to survive. I think it is held back in terms of some of the more payments-oriented use cases. But that's where you've got the aggregation layers that can help provide efficiency. And people are already sort of building around it. I don't think the sort of move towards a fully sharded Ethereum chain, it's just extremely difficult to do. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of disconnected states that have to be synchronized. And it's just technically extremely difficult. I think if you want those types of efficiencies, looking towards delegated proof of stake or other alternative consensus mechanisms have some credibility, but it's super early on. My Polkadot view is something that's probably 10 years from now makes sense. I do think there will be convergence, but I think at the end of the day, Dan, the way I manage my portfolio, just to close this out, is also predicated on my cash needs and what else is going on in the market. One belief I've always had is when it is time, you take some money off the table. And so again, I've always sort of tried to stay very level-headed and clear-minded about these things. I'm not always successful, but I try. I think it's just very important for people to keep in mind, you have an operating cost as an entity. And so be smart about how you manage your own personal runway, because the only thing at the end of the day that I really value, it's not assets, not stuff like that. It's my freedom and my time. 
And in order to have that, I just need to have personal runway. So that's sort of the way I think about it. If I have dry powder, I will deploy. But my most important thing to preserve is my freedom and my time and the ability to work on what I want, which is a huge privilege and a huge luxury. So I think about my portfolio in the context of maximizing my runway. And to say whatever the fuck I want, honestly. <laughs> there you go. You just did. All right. Melton Demers from CoinShares. Thank you for joining us. Trevor Marshall, CTO, co-founder of Current. I hope you'll come back. This is a great conversation. And let's do it again. Let's update some of these views. We need to do an episode on Ethereum and why proof of stake is not a good migration. It'll be fun. All right. Let's do it. I'll be the normie host. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us at OK Computer. We'll see you again soon. Thanks. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.